Now, uh, if we turn back to the passage, uh, you can see there that Moses' first sermon begins at verse 6, where he begins to give the second generation of Israel uh, a bit of a history lesson about the first generation. Uh, Notice that he takes them back to a time when God tells Israel to set off from Mount Sinai to go and claim the promised land. But can you see uh, that from verse 9... One of the very first things that Moses speaks about is the issue of leadership. For Moses recounts the difficulty he was having um, back in the days of Sinai. Moses recounts the difficulties he was having in leading the people of Israel because, well, they had grown to be so numerous that they were like the, the stars in the sky. God had been faithful to Israel because that was actually a promise uh, made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15 that he would make the nation of Israel as numerous as the stars in the sky. But they had grown so big that Moses was struggling. Uh, In verse 12 he says, How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Now, uh, I don't think that that is Moses' complaining here. Um, I think it's him noticing that despite the privileges of leadership, uh, it's also a great weight and burden on him as well because of the sheer number of people and the sheer um, strife and difficulties that, that people were facing. And so what does he do? Well, he delegates leadership to other suitable men, doesn't he? Uh, It seems in verse 16 that uh, these men are to lead in a military sense as commanders, but in verse 17 they are also to be judges in in an administrative sense as well. In other words, they are to decide on disputes between uh, people as uh, these disputes came up. They were to act on, on behalf of God himself, and only if the cases proved to be too difficult uh, would they sort of go up the, uh, the appeal court uh, to Moses, who would then finally be the arbiter. But what kind of leaders does Moses want here? Well, you can see it there in verse 15, can't you? He says, it says he's after men who are wise, he's after men who have understanding, and he's after men who are experienced. Uh, Now, uh, I just want to ask, uh, what does it mean to be wise? Um, If you close your eyes and think about uh, the wise people uh, in our world, um, who are the the people that you think of? Uh, Well, I asked um, ChatGPT this question uh, this week. I punched in the the question, who do people consider to be wise in the modern era? Uh, Who do you think uh, ChatGPT told me are the wise men? Uh, Does anyone want to have a guess? No? Bill Gates? Uh, He wasn't on the list, but uh, I wouldn't have been surprised if he came up. Yeah? Anyone else? Sorry, what was that? 
Was that you, Hezam? <laughs> oh, BJ, yes. What did you say? Heywon. <laughs> I, I specifically asked about wise men, uh, not, not wise, wise women. Um, yes, she would have been there, I'm sure. Uh, he, here are three people that uh, ChatGPT told me were wise. Um, Warren Buffett. Does anyone know who Warren Buffett is? Um, he's a, a famous investor um, and ph- a philanthropist uh, in the United States. Uh, another person that was mentioned uh, was Nelson Mandela, uh, the anti-apartheid revolutionary and South Africa's first black president. Uh, or, um, this came as a bit of a surprise to me, but uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, made the list. I don't know how she made the list when I asked about men, but um, she uh, is a talk show host who also gives self-improvement tips. And so it seems to me that the world's definition of the wise are people who have um, a certain knowledge in a, per, uh, in a particular area and have the practical skills to get things done in that, in that particular area. That's how I think the world sees wisdom. But friends, I, I want to suggest that this is not the Bible's understanding of wisdom. Rather... The wise person in the scriptures is the person who fears God, as the book of Proverbs tells us, and who obeys God's word. That's the wise person. Uh, Turn with me, for example, to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. Just come across a few chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, Listen to what Moses says towards the end of uh, his his first sermon. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, he says... See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. In other words, if you obey God's word, then the nations will recognize something special is going on. They will say, wow, they are a wise and understanding people. They know what life is all about. They have a touch of God about them because you can only have what they have if God is at work. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Uh, Why does Moses talk about leadership here as one of the very first things he talks about as he recounts the Israelite experience? It's very strange, isn't it, that he would mention leadership as uh, one of the first things. Why does he do it? Well, I think Moses talks about leadership here because if Israel is going to succeed rather than fail in the promised land, then it matters very much who they follow. In fact, we'll see that this theme of leadership is a very important theme in the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. What Israel needs are leaders 
wise leaders who will lead them into the life of blessing in the promised land. Of course, if you know the story of Israel after the time of Deuteronomy, uh, one of the fundamental reasons why they failed in the promised land was because of the failure of leadership in Israel. The failure of leaders who led them into idolatry rather than the worship of God. It was the failure of Israel's leaders that led the people of Israel eventually to be exiled from the promised land in the foreign land of Babylon many hundreds of years after this time that Deuteronomy speaks about. And yet, when Jesus comes along, well, it's fascinating that he's presented by the New Testament as someone who is wise. He is the wise man par excellence. Uh, do you remember that Jesus uh, says about himself in Matthew 12 that uh, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but behold, someone even greater than Solomon is here, he says, as he speaks about himself. Or the Apostle Paul says that Christ is not only the power of God, but the wisdom of God. For it is Christ who was the one who feared God and obeyed God, even to the point of giving up his life on the, on the cross. And it is Christ who you and I must follow if we are going to be led into our promised land of heaven. But, uh, just like Moses, uh, Jesus also delegates leadership in his church, doesn't he? He delegates leadership to his apostles and then to other leaders such as pastors and, and teachers whose role it is to, keep, uh, to help others to be wise and obedient to the word of God. And so when we choose leaders in our congregation, we need to choose people who are wise in the sense that they are people who fear God and who are demonstrating obedience to God's word in their lives. Now, if you were a leader in our church, um, are you somebody like that? Are you somebody who is fearing God and continuing to grow in obedience to the things he says? We want to choose people who are wise, understanding, and experienced. Not recent converts, as uh, 1 Timothy has taught us uh, recently, but people with a proven track record in all these things. Uh, I think by God's grace, uh, we have uh, great leaders in our congregation, um, growth group leaders and other leaders in, in our church who, who serve us very well. And although it is a privilege to lead, uh, they are the ones who have courageously agreed to share in the responsibility of bearing the weight and burden of leadership. And uh, some of you who are leaders know that weight and burden as you care for your groups each week and as you minister to those who are struggling um, in, in your midst. 
And so, friends, I, I just want to ask uh, us all as a congregation, um, are you looking after your leaders? Are you looking after your leaders? When was the last time you encouraged your leaders? It's very easy to complain about leaders, about what they are not doing, but when was the last time you encouraged them? In the New Testament, uh, we're instructed to make their life a joy as much as possible. As the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 13, make the lives of your leaders a joy rather than a misery through complaining and groaning, uh, which was the weight and burden that Moses had to carry. Because if you make your leader's life a joy, it will be to your advantage. If you make their life a misery, then Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says it will be of no benefit to you. By the way, I'm not talking about myself. Um, my life is a wonderful joy, and I know that many of you encourage me, but uh, I'm talking specifically about our growth group leaders in this instance. Uh, make their life a joy. Look after them in the way that you relate to them. All right. Uh, we're in the final part of our passage, um, and you can see there that Moses recounts the failure of the first generation in the hope that the second generation will learn from them. Uh, here is a lesson in failure. Not, sorry, it's <laughs> not a lesson in failure, a lesson from failure. Uh, in verse 19, we are told that the first generation set out from Horeb, or Mount Sinai, and at Kadesh Barnea, they were told to take the promised land. Uh, it's interesting that uh, in verse 21, Moses says uh, to the first generation, See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Uh, it's actually a phrase that's uh, there in chapter 1, verse 8 as well, um, where it says, See, I have set the land before you. Uh, it's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, see. Because uh, I think what Moses is saying here, or what God is saying, is that this is the nature of faith. This is what faith is all about. For faith is to see something in your mind's eye even before that thing has happened, because God has promised it to you. And so, things seem to go well. Uh, in verse 22, the people of Israel uh, want to send spies into the promised land. Uh, Moses agrees. Uh, Twelve um, spies, one from each tribe of Israel, are then sent to go into the promised land as far as the valley of Eshkol, which I'm told to... The to this very day, is a, is, a, is a land that is very fertile and produces uh, great uh, fruit uh, for winemaking. But the spies are sent out uh, to the valley of Eshkol, and in verse 25 they come back with some of the fruit of the land, saying that it is indeed a good land that the Lord is giving us. And yet, the more they hear from the spies, I want you to notice, the more afraid they get. 
Uh, have a look at what they say in verse 28, for example. Uh, chapter 1, verse 28, they say, The people uh, in the land of Canaan are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Uh, do you see what they're saying? Uh, the peop- uh, they're saying that uh, the people uh, in that promised land are bigger and stronger and greater than we are. Even the cities are bigger and greater and stronger than we are. Uh, the Anakim uh, had the reputation of being giants. Um, they uh, are a bit like the islanders of uh, the first century. Um, I don't think Matt Halani's uh, here today. He's got COVID. But imagine an army of Matt Halani's, um, you know, coming at you. Uh, and, you know, they're all much less friendly than, than, than Matt is. Uh, That's what they had to deal with. Uh, Later on, in chapter 1, verse 39, it seems like the people of Israel were also worried about what would happen to their children if they went into the Promised Land and had to face uh, people like that. Uh, Of course, uh, Moses reminds them of the God who loves them. Uh, In verse 30, he says that the Lord will go before them and fight for them just as he had done in Egypt. Uh, if you remember, um, in Egypt, God is the one who went before the people of Israel and fought for Israel against one of the mightiest armies in the ancient world and came out victorious. In verse 39, he reminds them of the way that the Lord had carried them uh, in the wilderness like a man carrying his son. Isn't that a beautiful image? Do you remember as a child being carried by your father on his shoulders? Your father is strong and he's kind and he will protect you. That's what he's saying about God. And yet, tragically, the people did not listen to the word of God. They rebelled against the Lord. They refused to enter into the promised land. In fact, it's extraordinary, but it seems here that the people of Israel just look at their circumstances and they think that God actually hates them rather than loves them. And they think that God has brought them to this point to destroy them rather than give them life and blessing. Uh, Now, friends, I, I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of Israel here. Uh, I think it's sometimes uh, easy for us to look back into the Old Testament and think that, you know, the Israelites were bumbling idiots. But you have to realize that these were a nomadic people, largely unarmed, who had been wandering around in the desert, who are now called upon to attack a people who are bigger and stronger and more vicious and more numerous than them, and cities that were protected by trained armies and fortification. If you were an Israelite with a few sort of children in tow, how do you think you would have responded to that? It's not very hard to imagine, is it, that you and I 
would probably have responded in the very same way that the Israelites responded. When have been the times when fear has led you and me to disobey God's word? When have been the times when fear is the thing that has led us to disobey or ignore God's word? What are the giants that you fear that leads you to rebel against God? Uh, Perhaps you fear what other people think of you. And so in your place of work, you seldom speak about Jesus because you are so fearful. Uh, Perhaps you are fearful of not having that one special relationship. And so you decide to date and marry a non-Christian person. Uh, Perhaps, um, and I think uh, this is a very common one, which I see in myself as well. Perhaps we are so fearful of not being secure that we become very greedy in hoarding the things that we have rather than sharing those things and being generous. Uh, Perhaps we are so fearful about our children's future that we are more concerned about their academic results and sporting achievements and doing things that make them happy rather than doing things that will help them to put their trust in the Lord Jesus. Make no mistake, you and I are often fearful and anxious in ways that tempt us away from God's word. How does God respond to Israel's disobedience and rebellion here? Well, you can see it there from verse 34, can't you? If you have a look at verse 34, God, in his anger, tells the first generation that they will not see the promised land. Only Caleb, who was one of the faithful spies, and Joshua, who would become the next leader of Israel, are allowed to enter the land together with the second generation. Uh, Sadly and very poignantly, not even Moses is allowed to enter the promised land because of the sin of the people. As the leader, he would have to identify with the rest of the people in their sins. And yet, uh, notice in verse 41 that in response to God's anger, uh, the people of Israel then turn around and they say, hang on a minute, God, we're going to go now. Uh, We rebelled against you in the past, but we're we're now going to go into the promised land. And even though God says that this time he's not going to be with them and they will be roundly defeated, well, they refuse to listen. They fasten on their weapons of war. They get ready and they go off to war against the Amorites. And lo and behold, just as God had said, The Amorites chase them away like bees and they suffer heavy losses that cause weeping rather than rejoicing. Now here's the question. Why does God not give them a second chance? I mean, after all, um, they did confess their sins to God, didn't they? They have recognised 
their error of their previous ways, why doesn't God just give them the promised land? Well, I think the answer lies in verse 43, where Moses says these words. Have a look at verse 43. Moses says, So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. You see what he's saying here? He's saying even though the people of Israel had confessed their sin, they were still not prepared to listen to God's word because God had just told them that he was not going to be with them and not to enter the promised land. There was confession, but there was no repentance. Further, they simply presumed that by trying to do something good, they could cover over their previous sins. Uh, You know, I've lived in houses where there have been mould on the walls at some stage, and uh, somebody has just come over and, and painted over those uh, mouldy patches um, or sort of, uh, you know, patches where there's been moisture coming through. Uh, you know, if you have mould on your walls or you, if you have some sort of blemish on your walls, it's never a good idea just to paint over it. For you might be able to hide the mould or, you know, the, the mildew or whatever it is for a little while, But eventually, the festering mold will reveal itself again because it was never properly dealt with in the first place. Now, I reckon that is how the people of Israel here are thinking about their previous sin. They're just trying to paper over it. You see, they're just simply presuming that by doing something good, I can just deal with that previous sin And I'll be able to atone for past sin in my life before God in ways that will turn away his anger from me. It's a very common religious strategy, isn't it? To just paper over sin. Um, I was reading not too long ago about uh, how most of the mafia are practicing Catholics. Uh, Why are they practicing Catholics? Well, it's because whatever sin they commit... They think they can just paper over it by doing a few good religious deeds and they will be okay before God. But it's the same temptation for Christians. You know, so often we sin in our lives, but how do we deal with it? Well, have you ever thought that the way to deal with your sin is simply by doing more things at church? More good things. You just want to paper over your past sins because you think that by doing more good things, uh, God is going to turn his anger away from you. But it never works, does it? In fact, I reckon Christians who think like this only ever serve God begrudgingly rather than with the joy that comes from the gospel, because they know that no matter how hard they try, they simply cannot atone for their own sins and the past sins of their lives. And so what were the second generation to learn from the failures of their fathers? Well, they were to learn 
that the promised land would come not by trying to atone for their own sins, but the promised land would come as they trusted the Lord, as they truly repented by obeying God's word and by loving him with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. It wouldn't come just by regretting the past and the mistakes they have made. It would come through genuine trust and genuine repentance before God. And friends, I want to say that that is no different for, for us. Uh, how should you and I respond to past failure and sin in our lives, whatever that may be? Well, it is to put our trust in the Lord Jesus who alone can atone for our sins. It is by trusting in his sin-bearing death for us and truly repenting, saying, yes, now I'm going to stop disobeying and obey the things that I'm hearing from God's word. It is by doing that that God promises to turn his anger away from us. If there is sin and failure in your life before God, as I'm sure there is with all of us, will you and I put our trust in Jesus and will we, will we repent and love God from the heart, from today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that your word not only exposes our sins, but encourages us to come to Jesus, who alone can atone for our sins and deal with them in turning away your anger from us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us uh, not simply to paper over our sins, but help us to come to Jesus this morning. And we pray that you would help us to live in true wisdom. Help us not simply to do good things as we define, define them, but help us to thirst for your word, to know your word and obey your word from the heart. And we pray that as we do this, uh, people around us will be attracted to the wisdom that comes from you and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For we pray these things for his mighty sake. Amen.